Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. In today's episode, you'll hear from Barry Bladen, an occupational therapy master's student who was drawn to the profession because of his first-hand experience as a patient. Barry had a stroke back in 2013 and will graduate with his OT degree in 2022. Barry is one of the most positive and joyful people I have ever met and has wisdom we all need to hear. Enjoy. Barry, it is a pleasure to have you on OT Uncorked today. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. (laughs) I'm really excited to hear more of your story. We know each other uh, from work and I've heard little bits and pieces of your story. But I just have a feeling that you have a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and experience that will be really helpful to other OT practitioners and students. So really eager to get into that conversation today. And I'm hoping that maybe you can start with just a brief introduction to who you are and what your life looks like as an OT student. Okay. All right. Um, My name is Barry Bladen. And um, as an OT student, my life looks kind of different now because I never envisioned my, you know, um, grad school to start on Zoom. So <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, it's been a roller coaster. But um, I've adjusted and adapted and I'm, and I'm doing well. And I really, I haven't met all of them in person, but I really love my classmates <laughs> and my professors. So, yeah. That's important. That can make or break it. So that's really yes. good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'd be really interested for you to share with us what led you to OT school, right? We all have a story, our OT journey, and it starts with first kind of finding out about OT. But can you give us some background on how you first encountered OT and kind of what led you to want to be an OT yourself? Okay. Yes, I can do that. It's one of my favorite things to share. Okay. So um, as you know, I'm a stroke survivor. And before I had the stroke and um, I started to recover, I had never heard of occupational therapy. I knew about physical therapy, which most people, you know, do, but I never heard of occupational therapy. And um, I really became acquainted with it at Rancho Los Amigos where I rehabilitated. So I didn't understand exactly what it was until they explained to me, you know, about activities of daily living. Cause I didn't, I had never heard that term. I didn't know what that was. I was like, what do you mean? And then they explained to me, you're toileting, you're showering, you're dressing, you're, you know, you're grooming. I'm like, oh, the really important stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I mean, and, and that's where I, I learned about it at Rancho Los Amigos. And then I start to get, get acclimated into it as I recovered, you know, and as I was doing my therapy and, um, I really found out for myself that I was very interested in it because a lot of it came from the fact that I was recovering and then regaining those skills, you know, because I, I wasn't, you know, they taught me how to shave myself, how to dress myself, you know, how to, um, how to toilet myself, how to get up off the floor, all those wonderful things. And I didn't realize until that moment, until those moments where I was recovering that how much of that is just automatic. It's something that we already do and it's automatic and we take it for granted. (laughs) So during that time, it became more precious. 
because I couldn't do it and I had to regain those skills. And I'm like, okay, I know how excited and emotional I got, you know, regaining those skills. I'm like, man, I want to help people. So it was really funny because I was in, I was doing outpatient therapy and I'm, I'm a very good listener. My, my OT basically gave me some, well, she did, she gave me some exercises and I got, I, 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 I was doing them so well that you literally, when I walk in, she'd be like, okay, Barry, you know what to do. You go over there in the corner and I'll work with the patients that, you know, that are more difficult to work with. And she would literally, I'd be in the corner and she, she, you know, she keep an eye on me, but she would send patients over to me and be like, you see what Barry's doing? Go over there and do what he's doing. He knows what he's <laughs> doing. Just go over there and follow and do exactly what he's doing. So she, she gave me free rank. Wow. And you kind I, of became I an that. assistant or a, or exactly. a rehab aid. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So as I got better and I got more interested, I was like, I went up to her one day. I said, you know what? I want to be an occupational therapist. And she just kind of looked at me and chuckled. She said, okay. <laughs> she kind of chuckled like, yeah, you're a little caught up in this. You, you know, I understand your emotions. And like, you know, she didn't believe me. Yeah. And, and I'm going to be very honest with you. She really, really did not believe me. So I went, I started um, at junior college because I hadn't been to school in a year. And let me just get into a little background. I, I, when I had the stroke, I was a truck driver. So you're talking about night and day. You're talking about from driving the big rig to going back to school and mm-hmm. not just going back to school, but getting into a medical profession. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is such, yeah, what a, what a big career change for you. And and can I ask, what age did you have your stroke? I had my stroke in my mid-30s. Okay. Yeah, okay. about 35. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before yeah. your stroke, you said you were driving a truck. And what what else did your life look like? I mean... I, we see now you're an OT student, and, and but so much has changed between now and then. So can you give us a better idea of what your life looked like before your stroke? Okay, so before my stroke, I was very unhealthy. And let me explain. So two, two major events happened. I had obtained a very good job that I wanted. I, um, I was driving for Federal Express. And the problem with Federal Express is that when you come in, they hire you with part-time. So I, I had to work two jobs because I, they were only giving me 20 hours a week. And I loved, 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 loved that job. But unfortunately, I ended up having to quit that job and go to another company that worked me three times as hard as Fellow Express. So I was already in the unhealthy habits because I was literally driving 44 miles one way to work just to get to FedEx. <laughs> to, okay. to then get in another truck and then to actually exactly. do your route and then, and then come back home sure so as you can imagine i had a lot of fast food unhealthy habits mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know right and, and, well you have to and exactly and then the the disappointment and stress of having to leave fedex and then go to this absolutely nightmarish job <laughs> which i'll get into mm. in a second the the habits got worse because I went from working 30 to 40 hours a week between those two jobs to working 70 hours a week. Wow. Yeah. That's too yeah. much. That's incredible. It is. Absolutely. And then not just that, but I um, had, I was responsible for loading and offloading my own freight. So I literally have to go deliver the freight, load it, unload it. Then I have to come back to the yard, unload the freight, go back out do the same thing. And it didn't matter. They didn't care about 12 hours with 14 hours. 
They were like, make sure your truck is empty. Make sure it's offloaded. Don't leave until it's done. And it didn't matter if stuff, if your stuff would fall down or whatever, you have to stack it back up. They didn't care. They want you to finish the job. Wow. I, I wonder in those kind of working conditions, um, did they seem to care at all about workers' health or train you in ways to unload and load your truck in a way that were safe for you? Safe for your they joints, did. safe for you. <laughs> um, they make sure that you know how to, you know, lift, you know, using your legs and stuff properly, but they don't, once they show you what to do, they don't. They just want okay. it done. Sure. You know, because time is money. Let's just be honest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So diet overall is tough to manage when you're commuting a long distance to work and then also constantly on the road for work. And then physically you were probably just exhausted and overworked because of lift heavy lifting it places a real burden on our bodies the diet was really i was okay. i was 80 pounds heavier than i am now let me just put it that way okay wow okay yes uh-huh so all of this together is kind of a perfect storm of unhealthy even though yes. you were exercising a lot for lifting it probably still wasn't great for your body i'd imagine no no how was your sleep my sleep was okay. I might have gotten four to five hours per night. That, we bad. have very different definitions of okay sleep. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, did, I, I never got eight hours. except maybe on the weekends. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were pretty mentally, physically exhausted. Your body probably wasn't getting what it needed because of this no. job. So then what happened when, when did you have your stroke and kind of what, what were, what was kind of going through your mind in that moment as you kind of started to realize that your body was kind of reacting to this, to this uh, pattern of behavior and these, these habits. At the time I didn't realize it. So I'll tell you exactly, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was um, getting, I was showering, getting ready to go meet my then girlfriend and now wife for, you know, an outing. And um, I'm in the shower, I'm showering, and I got, all of a sudden, I got very tired. Mm. And I couldn't figure out, well, I, I, I kind of had an idea why, because I worked so hard, but I just attributed to that. I had no idea. And I'm getting tired, and I'm, and I'm washing myself in the shower, and then all of a sudden, I kid you not, right here on the left side of my brain, I get, it felt like somebody turned off the light switch. Wow. I could feel, I could feel, the, yeah, I could feel the clock right here. And I literally, I fell down in the shower. Yeah, I fell out in the shower and I had to pull myself out with my left side because my right side was completely, wow. completely gone. Total paralysis on the right side. Yeah. So I'm pulling myself out. I had my father. My father lived with me at the time, but he was in his bedroom. It took him about mm-hmm. three minutes because I, I didn't, um, I have slight aphasia. So it took about three minutes for him to hear me. And I'm pounding on the door in the bathroom like, dad, 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 I need you to call 911. So and I'm just going to be very honest with you. I, I'm a lifelong Christian. And the whole time that I was on that floor, the whole time that I fell, I'm like, I believe I'm healed. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you, Jesus. Cause, uh, yeah, because if I, I, I'm going to be very honest with you. If I hadn't have done that, I really don't know where I'd be right now. Mm-hmm. Seriously. So that whole time that I'm, that I'm you know, reacting to this crisis, I'm, I'm reacting in the right way in my eyes. <laughs> Because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, shit, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, I wasn't, that wasn't me. So he finally heard me called 911 and um, the paramedics came to the house 
They come in the bathroom. I kid you not. I, 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 about a minute before they came in the bathroom, all my feeling came back. All the paralysis went away because that was a TIA. That wasn't the stroke. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that was a TIA. So you, you had a TIA and mm-hmm. in that moment of crisis where you're not sure what's happening to your body, mm-hmm. you have a response of praying. Yes. This is why we pray. We practice praying because in the moment of need, we're ready. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had this crisis moment. You experienced this paralysis and aphasia. Everything just wasn't working. You said you described it as a light switch, uh, which is really yeah. an interesting way to describe it. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then it all kind of came back to you as the paramedics yes. were walking in the room. Yes. Had you ever heard of a stroke or a TAA before? I, I, you know, I've had many patients who have never really, they maybe heard of a stroke, but had no idea what it was. Were you familiar? Did you know what was happening? I kind of knew what was happening. I didn't know it was a TIA. I knew, I knew it was a stroke, you know, but I didn't know it was a, you know, a mini stroke yeah. because I didn't think anything was going to come back. I thought I was, when I was pulling myself out, I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is actually <laughs> happening. Yeah. So it came back and, um, they picked me up off the floor. They they went out. My that my dad went in the room and grabbed me some clothes. And I was butt naked, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they took me to the hospital. And 15 minutes later, I had another TI oh, in wow. the hospital. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the ICU doctor, um, well, not the ICU, the emergency room doctor. He's he's like, I know what's happening to you, and he's like, we're gonna send you to a bigger hospital because I was. The hospital they sent me to was a little local hospital around the corner from my house. Okay. And they're like, we're going to send you to a bigger hospital where they treat this kind of stuff. But they gave me, um, they gave me medication. They hadn't given me the shot yet. I'll tell you about the shot in a second. But um, (laughs) they gave me medication and um, they ended up sending me to to Keck. Okay. Yeah. They sent me to Keck. Keck Hospital USC. Keck Hospital USC. Yeah. I went to Keck and I was in the ICU for about a day and a half, maybe two days. And they kept my um, blood pressure elevated on purpose because they didn't want me to have another stroke. They didn't want to have another clot. So they purposely kept it mm-hmm. elevated. But the doctors thought I was doing well. So he's like, oh, you're doing well, Mr. Bladen. I, you know what? I think we're going to put you in a regular room and, and, and I think we're going to send you home. And I'm like, I don't feel right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I had all my functions, you know, because I hadn't had the stroke yet. So I was, you know, I was able to move like I am right now and everything, but I just didn't feel right. So I said, I skeptically said, I was like, okay. So he puts me in a room and they're telling me about four or five hours, they're going to release me to go home. So my mom's there, my mother-in-law now is there, my, my, girl, my wife was there. And they're like, well, since they're going to release you, we're going to go to Target and get you some stuff that you need. Miranda? They go to Target. I get up out the bed, and I t- and before I got out the bed, I I had told the nurse, nurse, I want to see the doctor. I don't feel right. I really want to see the doctor. Yeah. I get out the bed. I walk in the bathroom. I have the stroke in the bathroom at Keck Hospital, on medication. Wow. Oh, and you me. and you you knew something was wrong. You knew yes. you weren't you weren't better. That you needed to stick yeah. around. You knew yourself Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and I don't even. I'll go into this very briefly. So they come and get me off the floor. They take me back to ICU. <laughs> and the doctor's not there. And I can't describe to you the next morning he came in. He came in the ICU. He didn't come by himself. He had seven residents behind him because my mom, oh, my mom, my mom. <laughs> 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 
he never he never looked my mom in the eye. He came in, he literally walked in the door with his head down like this, with the mm -hmm. residents behind him. He goes, Miss Bladen, I I can't I don't know what happened. I don't know. And my mom, oh, I had to get a hold. I had to get her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She. That's she what moms are for, happy. right? Very yes, protective. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. Okay, so yeah. you even stumped the doctor. So you had two TIAs back to back. And then mm -hmm. you had a stroke on the bathroom floor. Were, were bathrooms scarring for you at this point? Because now you'd have two um, strokes kind of. in a bathroom. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, yeah. You're like, we're exactly. not going in there anymore. <laughs> oh, exactly. And you know, and then, and then again, I'm like, okay, this time, at least the first time I was in the shower, this time I'm on the toilet, I fall off the toilet. I'm like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Bad moments yeah. to have a stroke. <laughs> exactly. I guess there's no yeah. good moment though either. So. No, there's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. Okay. Um, Not to make light of it. I know this is really serious too, but um, awesome. you've been through quite a journey up till this point and this is the time when the stroke happened. So. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you stuck around Keck for a bit then, I guess. So you stumped the doctors, they all came in and, and I guess what was going through your mind at this point and physically, what were you experiencing? So physically I was, I was, I, I, I can't, I'm trying to think how I can really describe it physically at that point. I was concerned because okay now I'm I can't move my right side. This is my dominant side. Yep. So I can't move my right side. So I'm doing everything with the left side, everything. And I'm in ICU. I spent I think four or five days in ICU. And with my elevated blood, I mean yeah, they ele purposely elevated my blood pressure and stuff. And I had a lot of thoughts going through my mind. I'm like, okay, what's life look like now? Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about. I saw a lot of people, and she and she. She doesn't like to hear this, but I was like, okay, what's the future look like now with my, you know, with my girlfriend? What am I, you know, what, what's going to happen to her? You know, I mean, what, what am I going to do? Because the one thing I did leave out, and this is very, this is very critical. And this happened while I was at Keck. I got a letter from the DMV. They suspended my license, my driver's license while I was in Keck. Oh yeah. Because I was a, I was a commercial truck driver. So by law, especially here in California, by law, if you have a certain, if you have a heart attack or a stroke, they have to report it to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Okay. And they immediately, yeah, they immediately temporarily suspended my license. So I'm like, okay, there goes my job. Yeah. And then, oh, I can't leave out the most important part. So the new job that I told you I started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was 12 days away from my 90-day probation. Do you know what that means? I don't, I mean, but I'd love for you to explain it. That means I had no insurance. They let you go that long without insurance? Yeah, because I was on my 90-day probationary period. I quit Federal Express when I had insurance, and then I went to a new company. So I didn't have any health insurance. So I had to go on Medi-Cal, which I had never been on Medi-Cal ever before. <laughs> right. Is that a yeah. common practice in sort of like the logistics and trucking industry? Is that a common practice where you don't have insurance for? No, 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 no. No. Do you know, like any job, you know how you start a job and they tell you you're on your 90-day probationary period? Yeah, I just I feel like I was always insured. No, I no. They just could fire me, I guess, would be. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for you they could fire you, but you also didn't have your benefits yet. No, you don't get your benefits until you until you pass a 90-day probationary period. Interesting. Yeah, so I had no okay. benefits. Mhm. Mm Okay, so you're in this moment of crisis, you're questioning, you know, what's going to happen in your relationship? You get a letter from the DMV essentially saying you can't do your job and you don't have health insurance. Right. Yeah. 
And meanwhile, people are trying to come in and help you recover. But how, how was that experience, you know, people coming in and trying to attend to your immediate needs, but then at the same time in the back of your brain or maybe even in the front, you're just going and going thinking about all the things that are going to be changed by the stroke and all the things you need to kind of take care of and you're responsible for. I mean, what what is it like handling all of that at once? Very stressful, but with me, so I'm 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 a little different from a lot of the way people handle stress. Cause I told you I'm a God fearing man. So, you know, I, I was doing a lot of praying in that time. You know, I had a lot of time to reflect, but I actually appreciated the doctors and the nurses because I'm like, okay, they're trying to help me get better. Mm-hmm. So I was really, really, really cautious of the way I talked to them. My mom, she let them have it. And I have to, and I have to get her, you know, I, well, I would, I would have to get her and I'd be like, you know, mom, when you go home tonight, they have to take care of me. So I'm in, I need you to talk to them with some respect <laughs> mm-hmm. and I need you to treat, you know, be nice to them because they're taking care of me while you're at home. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I need you. Yeah. So I need you to kind of take it easy on them and, and be respectful and be nice to them because, you know, even though there were some mistakes made, they, I still have to stay here. I'm not going home. Right. Yeah. So and I yeah. So I carried that attitude from the hospital to Rancho Los Amigos as well. Same same attitude. Yeah. I actually wondered about that because I know that you're very positive and you always sort of are calm and you've really emphasized even in our work environment, don't stress. It's not worth being overwhelmed by stress for it for anything. And I always wondered if that was more of a result of your stroke and kind of what happened to you and the way you've reframed your life since, or if that's just kind of the way you've always been. I haven't always been that way. And what you just said, reframe my life. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. After the stroke, because it's, it's stress is detrimental. It's, it's definitely detrimental. And it is for, especially a stroke survivor, because I'm already taking high blood pressure medication. I'm already taking cholesterol medication. <laughs> I'm already taking stroke prevention medication. I'll be taking that for the rest of my life, they tell me. You know. So I mean, I don't want to set I don't want to set myself off again. And I I'm gonna be very honest with you. I've had some moments where I've gotten into it with some family members, like like heated discussions, mm-hmm. and I can actually feel my right side shaking. And at that point, yeah, at that point when I feel, I'm like, oh, oh, no problem, whatever it is, forget it. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> not I'm worth not, it, not worth it. <laughs> exactly, it's not. And 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 I'm like that. I've I've calmed down a whole lot because what people don't realize is they um it's, it is a brain injury, and you're not always in control of your emotions. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, you you have a lot of stuff going through your mind already because your life is different. So you could snap at the drop of a dime. You really could. And, and I caught myself doing that. And I was like, look, I can't, I can't do that. I cannot do that. So I'm, my attitude is derived from, I'm just be honest with you, Miranda, waking up every morning. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, and especially in this last year, you know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> often. Yeah. There's a lot of people that, that, are never, that we'll never see again, you know, and I'm thankful to God to wake up every morning. So I take that attitude, even though it might be a not so, so such a great day. I might not have a good day. I'm alive and I'm well, and that's what drives me and what motivates me. Yeah, that's so important. And you're right. We can we can take that for granted sometimes too. And I right. certainly agree with you. This past year has been just daily reminders of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we, we, we need more daily reminders, hopefully from less traumatic things. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I agree. I, I think you bring up a good point too, that a lot of times, even as therapists, I think sometimes we see, you know, some of the physical effects of stroke. Um, we can maybe hear the aphasia. We are working with people very intimately on their ADLs. But there's actually quite a few folks that we don't end up seeing outside of acute care. Um, I'm working on a project. I'm just kind of an assistant on the project. But I get to talk with stroke survivors up to a year out from their stroke. And many of them have very few symptoms. They don't necessarily have the paralysis or the aphasia. They don't even necessarily have severe cognitive uh, impairment due to their stroke. But a lot of them will report to me that they just feel they, they can't control their mood the same way. Yeah. Emotionally, they just they just aren't the same. And it's a change that they feel and maybe everyone else around them is saying, you're fine, you're back to normal, you're doing everything the way you did before. And they're like, nope, nope, something's different. And they try to describe that to me. And so thankfully, I'm able to capture that in the research by saying, yes, they have some symptoms, they have something going on that's still affecting them. But I mean, what you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what has that experience been like for you? You know, the emotional and and, and sort of mental aspect of just knowing something's different and, and trying to cope with with that change. Uh, sometimes you end up in tears. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I end up in tears. And the good thing about it, though, is for me, it never lasts more than a day. Mm-hmm. Because I try to focus on what I can do and not what I can't do. Yeah, That's the thing with me, you know, I mean, I, I have days like, you know, I mean, even with school, you know, like I said, this is this is rough with school and everything. And I have not so good days, you know, and I spend some days literally it's rare, but I spend some days with my camera off <laughs> during class because yep. I'm not feeling my greatest emotionally, but it doesn't last more than than a day because I'm thankful for what I can do as opposed to what yeah. I can't do. And, and I, I try to, so I think I've told you before, I'm, I'm a peer mentor in Rancho Los Amigos for stroke yes. patients. That's what I try to instill in them. I'm like, we, we, we make sure that we celebrate what they can do and not what they can't do. Because we always make sure we tell them you have different abilities now. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Not, you're not disabled. You have different abilities. That's it. It's yeah. okay. You can still, and we always tell them, as long as you can breathe, there's something you can do. There's a mm-hmm. contribution that you can make. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and, and I think you're probably an incredible peer mentor. Just your attitude, even just being your peer at work is just, you're such a light. So um, I can only imagine that you. that you were just exactly who they need to meet at that moment. Uh, what has that experience been like mentoring others? Oh. And, and, and are they responsive to that message that you have? I mean, or, or are they sort of just so in the moment of experiencing this crisis that they, they're not, they don't have ears to hear it? Most of them are responsive. They respond positively. Most of them, because Nobody believes I had a stroke. Nobody. Mm-hmm. I can, I don't have, I mean, people at USC, <laughs> people at Rancho Los Amigos, the only reason they, is because they know me. But I've met some very receptive patients and I've met some patients that are like, they give their, their PTs and OTs the blues. And those are the ones that they call me in on. Those are the ones that they really want me to come in on because I'll just, I just use one case as an example. Yeah, Jane Doe was this, this patient that did not want to do any therapy, so I thought it was a complete waste of time. The OT was so frustrated, she was to the point like, hey, why don't you just move this, just, just squeeze this ball, this therapy ball for me, and I can at least chart that I did something with you. She didn't even want to do that. Mm-hmm. So she she introduced her to me and everything. She asked me to come in, and she introduced her to me, 
and she's looking me up and down like, and she was really, really blunt and straightforward. She's like, who are you? What are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm, my name is Barry. I'm a, I'm a no barriers pyramid mentor. I'm, I'm, you know, they asked me to come, come talk to you. And she's like, well, what are you going to say? What are you going to say that's different from, from them? What are you going to say? I'm like, well, um, a few years ago, that was me in that chair. And not, you know, and, and not me standing here. She was, she looked at me and she looks me up and down and she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I, I had a stroke, just like you did. And she's like, oh, you didn't. So then I have to pull out the phone in the picture that I showed, <laughs> I showed you. And she was just amazed. She was like, what did you do? What, what, how, how do you get, how do you get to where you are? And I told her, I said, you see this lady standing right here? Yeah. Yeah. What about her? She was my OT. Um, <laughs> <yep>. <laughs> what? Yeah, this is this is my occupational therapy, one of them. But this is my OT. She helped. She helped to get me where I'm at right now. Mm. And it's like a light bulb moment. They, some of them, some of them are very receptive. She was in that case. When she found out my story and everything, she was like, "What did you do? What do you need to? Do? What do I need to do? Can you show me what you did?" So then we start going through the you know the motions, and the OT didn't have any more problems with her. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, um, from your perspective, just having met so many other stroke survivors, what it, what are your thoughts on why some people are so closed off to therapy? You know, what kind of stories have you heard that have uh, kind of given you some insight into that? Most stroke survivors don't feel that they're recovering fast enough. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And I had that too. I'm going to be very honest with you because I work very hard and I always felt that I should be further along than I am. So even though the occupational therapists are constantly reminding them it's a process, the parameters constantly reminding them it's a process. And we're also telling them, look, this rehabilitation process is not, not just for a year. This is for life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then we, and then we explain the brain we wiring to them and everything. It's like, look, this is, this is a lifelong process. You're not going to be fixed in six months and you're like, Oh yeah, you know, no, 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 no. You got to keep on keeping on, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's the majority of the stroke patients that I see. And like I said, including myself, we usually don't feel that we're, co- we're recovering fast enough. And then when you can't do things that you normally did before the way you did them, that can be very discouraging. So that, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the main, that's the main thing. They, a lot of patients feel that they should be further along than they are. And they really have to work on their patients. That's the problem. Yeah. And I think that's part of our job as occupational therapy practitioners too, to just be realistic, but hopeful and right. share that you, you can continue to recover. I think part of it too is hard. I remember having lots of uh, patients who would hear from someone they knew, or even maybe hear from a physician or another health professional that typically most of your recovery is going to happen in the first year. That is mm-hmm. what is often used as kind of a benchmark when people ask, when will I be better? And I think it's always said with, um, you know, as, as a positive thing, it, we're, we're saying it to comfort someone and say, see, you've got a whole year. But I think you're right. As people start to get closer to that one-year mark, they start to get worried that they're not fully recovered. But what we can instill some hope in is that there's a lot of research suggesting that recovery can happen in the chronic phase. It can happen for decades after stroke. You know, we work with folks who are 10, 15 years out from stroke, and they continue to have gains, functional gains too. Um, so I do think that it's our job to, you know, be realistic and, and tell people this is hard work. Rehab is not easy when you've had a stroke, and it's going to take a while, but there is hope and keep working at it. So I, I do think that's part of our role, and so this is a good reminder yeah. of that. Yeah, you definitely have to keep working at it. I mean, I heard a story of a patient that couldn't talk for 10 years. 
and 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 all of a sudden, I kid you not, he was in occupational therapy, and all of a sudden he said hi to the occupational therapist after ten years of not speaking. Wow. Exactly. That's and amazing. and he even yeah exactly he she said I I never forget what she described. She said when he said hi, he's like he jumped, and he's like he's going like this like hi. He said it again, and and she said he just 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 boohooed. Ten wow. years. Ten yeah. Years. It's possible. Ten years. Yeah, it is. That's incredible. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I just try to keep them motivated and tell them, you know, just keep, just keep going, because, you know, and don't. The, the another big mistake that patients uh, make is looking at other patients mm. and not understanding that everybody recovers differently. We have to constantly explain to them, look, your recovery process is different from so and so's recovery process. You're not, mm-hmm. you know. There's different, there's different reasons they recovered as fast as they did, or they regained certain functions that you haven't regained yet. Not to say that you're not going to, but you just keep working at it and you will. And we just have, yeah, we just constantly keep doing that, you know? And I think also it's our job to educate because as you're Mm -hmm. saying, everyone's going to recover differently. And there's so many personal factors that, and environmental factors that will influence that recovery. But just because you have a stroke doesn't mean that you and the person next to you have any of the same impairments or difficulties because really just a stroke means that in some way your brain didn't get the blood supply it needed to a specific area. And there was some sort of cell death or just deoxygenation and it didn't get the oxygen and nutrients that it needed, right? So absolutely, that's all that means. And we have a very complex brain. So depending on where that stroke happened, you're going to have a completely different experience. So I don't know if all patients really know that. And unless we remind them that your stroke is unique and you're not going to have the same stroke as the person in the room next to you. And you also have different factors that are going to influence your recovery. So I think that's also part of our job too. And we need to keep remembering that because we're so used to it. We know what a stroke is. We see people who's, who've survived strokes all the time. And we sometimes, I think, forget in that in that position, what, what does that person know? And they might not know enough to just understand how unique their injury is and how unique their trajectory is going to be. Absolutely. And you, you touched on something very important. You said one word that is very important. You said environment. Okay. Now let's mm-hmm. talk about environment. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> I do not now, with the exception of patients that I'm trying to help, you know, that I'm trying to encourage during the recovery process, my environment is not negative. Now, that's, mm. that's very important. You need to listen to this part. Okay. I surrounded my people. I surrounded myself. I'm sorry, not people, but I surrounded myself with people that were going to speak positive things into my life. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't. That was very important for me in the recovery process, most definitely, and it is now. And I don't, you'll, you'll, if you ever see me around, if you happen to, you know, be fortunate enough to see me around with somebody speaking negatively, I will quietly dismiss myself from that person because you're, you, you don't have any hope. You can't instill hope in somebody if you're negative. You can't do that. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm the, I'm the type of person. I'll just use a story. And this is this just this, this happened Saturday. I actually was riding my bike Saturday through the park in Long Beach here. And I passed by a, a guy. I knew he had a stroke. He was walking with a cane. His arm was curled like mine. And he's walking he, and he's walking in the park. And I was very proud of him. So I was prompted to stop and let him know that I was a stroke survivor and how well he was doing. It turns out he, he recovered at Rancho Los Amigos. And I, w- I ended up being there with him for an hour. Yeah. 
exactly. But the point is, the point is this. He told me, he's like, when we got through talking, he's like, I needed to see you and I needed to hear what you had to say because he's like, even though I'm out here working hard, I'm going through a lot at home and I need to, un I need to hear those words that it's going to be all right. He said, I needed to hear that. So see, I try to, I, I, I know what the size of the stroke are now. I know what, you know, I know how to look for the gate and everything. And I'll walk up to random strangers. If I see and I, and I can tell they've had a stroke, I'll walk up to them and encourage them because they need that. You don't never, you never know what you could say that would help somebody. <laughs> you so never true. know. Yeah. And that social support is so important. I mean, I guess at, at all in your journey, did you ever feel alone? Did you ever feel like you didn't know anyone else who had a stroke or have you kind of always stayed connected? I'm a very, very talkative person. So I always stay connected, but um, <laughs> I did feel there was moments and, and I think everybody goes through this has had a stroke. Um, there's definitely moments that you tend to kind of, at least for me, lash out at the people that are closest to you because they, they can't understand. They understand from a different perspective, but they can't understand from your perspective what you're going through. So there's, there, there's been moments like that, yeah, that I have lashed out because I'm like, okay, you, you don't understand and you never will. But, you know, now that I'm mindful of what they're going through as well, because they're going through it with you and you're not going through it alone, I don't understand what they're going through. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, yeah, you know, so... I had to think about that. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. If I'm going through this from my end, what are they going through watching me struggle? You know, and, and a very, and a very um, eye-opening thing that my mom said, my mom cried when I took my first step at Rancho Los Amigos because my mom said she saw my two-year-old self in this 30-something-year-old body when I took that step. Yeah. yeah. And that was like, okay, that was eye-opening for me because I'm like, okay, now I see what she's going through <laughs> as compared yeah. to what I'm going through. Yeah, I see that now. She's like, she's remembering her child at two years old, taking his first step and looking at him here like, wait a minute, I just went back all those years and saw you when you were two years old and she just lost it. Yeah, your environment is very important and occupational therapists play a big role in setting the tone for that environment while the patient is around them because my environment was at Rancho Los Amigos was very positive and very inclusive of everybody. We always had a big group and everybody got treated the same. Some people who didn't feel that they did, <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's that, that negative aspect of, you know, the recovery process, but I never felt left out or I, I didn't feel that I was, a, I never felt that I wasn't a part of, you know, and I always tried to make others that didn't feel that way feel the same way. It didn't always work, but I tried. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's why support groups are so important. And it's sometimes hard to get people to come to the support groups for very real challenges. Yeah. Time being a major constraint transportation and, and just other issues as well. But I think they are so important. And the people who I've worked with who have had really strong social networks, whether that strong social networks with people who have had strokes or just their family and friends, they just are such a healthier, happier version of themselves. And they just recover in a different way, I yeah. think. Um, they have purpose. And I think that's huge. And, and that's part of why I love OT stroke recovery is that we can help people remind them what their purpose is 
uh, for some people it might change. For some people, it might just be very consistent from before their stroke. But I love just tapping into what truly matters and what truly brings them meaning and purpose and just driving into that point. And that is what we're trying to recover. Let's try to bring that back to the center and the rest will happen. What you just said is therapy for me. Mm. I kid you not. I could I could drive to Rancho Los Amigos for the support group. I could be having the worst day. And I kid you not, when I when I as soon as my, my tires, <laughs> my vehicle hit that property, everything I'm going through goes away. I kid you not, because I'm not there for I am there for me in a sense, but I'm not there for me. I'm I'm there for them. So what I'm because I, I always say, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm actually able to walk. I'm I'm leaving this hospital. I'm not staying here. You're staying here. So what I'm going through is nothing compared to what you're going through. And I love that. I love I love, you know, being able to go and sit down and talk with them and, you know, help them out as, as best as I can and, and you know, try to aid them in their recovery process. That for me, I could be in the worst mood. I kid you not. When I leave there, I'm up, I'm high. I'm just elated. I love that. I, I, I love that. So it, it, it will definitely carry on in the practice. I can't wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I really can't wait because I just I, I love to help patients. I love it. Well, I can't wait for you to be a therapist. I know you found OT because of your stroke, right? And that's kind of led you to this journey. Are you still eyes fixed on working with other stroke survivors or has that started to, to be in question at all? Just just kind of curious. Um, I'm going to see. Um, I would love to, you know, I, <laughs> depending on what, what, what concentration I you know choose, I still would love to work with stroke patients, even if I'm just mentoring them, even if I'm not working with the quote unquote adult population. I would still like to be a mentor. I don't know exactly what direction I'm going to go in yet, but no matter what, I would like to still mentor stroke patients because they need it. Yeah. Yeah. They need something that's needed. Yeah. And they need a message of hope. And uh, it's so, it's so impactful coming from someone who has lived through something similar to what they're living through. And so I'm glad you're a mentor. Thank you. Yeah. 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 (laughs) An important part of the health team. Oh, Yeah. And even now, you know, I mean, I haven't been able to go. I went three times last year. Uh, my therapist called me and just told me they're having a difficult time with the patient. And um, they're asking, can, I, can you drive by here and can you come see him? I'll bring him outside. Yeah. Bring him out. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah. So yeah. Good. I, I, I love that. I just, yeah. 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 So I do want to get into kind of mm-hmm. your journey to becoming an OT. But before okay. we do that, I'm actually curious to hear more about your recovery. So I know we've heard about the story up until you had your stroke and kind of the initial experience in the hospital. And we've talked about how each person's recovery is very different. So I'm curious what that looked like for you, uh, kind of what the pipeline as far as, you know, hospital to rehab to outpatient, what what that looked like for you and, and kind of where you are now as far as your stroke recovery. Okay. that That's a great question. It's a big question. I know. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a great, that's, that's a great question. So I was at Rancho Los Amigos inpatient for three weeks. Okay. When I left Rancho Los Amigos, I left with a wheelchair and a um, walker. Okay. So I was explained, it was explained to me that the recovery process is ongoing. Just because you go home doesn't mean you sit at home. So I was, you know, given a lot of literature, you know, with um, exercises and things to do at home. And I was very fortunate. Somebody believed in me and saw my recovery process and they actually bought me an electronic stimulation machine. So I used that at home. (laughs) 
during my recovery process. So to help with my with my leg, with my dorsiflexion, as well as you know um, my uh, my wrist and my arm and everything. I use that every day, all the time. And uh, do you know what a Golden Gate Bridge is? I don't. So a Golden Gate Bridge is a submission bridge that they make for your arm, and it okay. holds it, it holds it in the position in a flex position like this. Okay. And you're supposed to wear it 30 minutes on and 30, 30 minutes off. And what it does is it sends your arm starts to tingle and get numb after 30 minutes, but it sends a signal to the brain to be able to, you know, to be able to make that flexion motion. So I use that all day, every day. I literally 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off. So, but the main part of my recovery process at home, my mom got up with me every day and walked around the park. Mm. Five to six days a week. I started out walking when I was able to, to, to get out of the wheelchair, which didn't take long. I was only in the wheelchair a month and a half, maybe. So I was able to go. I went to the park with my walker. I walked around the park with my walker, did that. I got strong. I can't, I, I don't know exactly how much time it took, but I got stronger. Then I had a four prong cane and I was able to use the four prong cane and walk around the park. And it's also with my AFO. I did have an AFO too. So, because you know, my, my knee would always buckle and give out. So I had to have the AFO and for the dorsiflexion as well, because I had no dorsiflexion. So after a little while of doing that, I was able to progress to the, to the uh, single cane and then nothing, just the AFO. Okay. And I walked around the park. This particular park, I walked around and had a man-made lake. And I walk around the Man Lake Lake. I, I, I always try to go every week. I try to add a lap. Mm. So I add a lap, add a lap. But that's how I recovered that, my diet at home. I changed my diet, of course. And um, I, just, I just kept exercising. And then I went to therapy. I went to therapy twice a week at Rancho Los Amigos. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, was your speech affected or your vision or your cognition? You know, what was that like for you? Cognition, definitely. My speech, I only had two speech therapy appointments. My speech okay. was not that bad at all. Yeah, it wasn't bad at all. She, after the second appointment, she released me. So it was strictly OT and PT. Okay. Yep. Yeah, cognition. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely <laughs> affected. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. I'm going to do a really, really quick sidebar. Sure. I had the stroke in, in 2013. I literally just got released from my neurologist. Once I can only I only have to see him once a year now. That just happened in 2000. That just happened last year. It just happened. So seven years. <laughs> I was yeah. seeing my neurologist because they thought for a minute they thought I was having focal motor seizures. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, they did. They did because of the tremors. Yeah. You know. So they thought they thought it was due to focal motor seizures, but they were wrong. I didn't. But I had medication and everything for focal motor seizures. Wow. And I had that medication for like almost two years. So they were following you along thinking that they hadn't quite captured everything, that you were having these seizures as well, in addition to mm -hmm. um, some of the rem you know, remaining symptoms of your stroke. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> seven years. Plus seven years, more than seven years, I guess, now at this point. It's seven years, it'll be eight years, July thirteenth. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So like seven and a half years since your stroke. And uh, do you feel that you're still recovering or do you feel that you've made a full recovery? What has that been like for you? I feel that I'm still recovering. There's still some things that I cannot do. One thing, one, one goal that I definitely have 
I want to run. I haven't been able to run, you know, and then I have minor setbacks because now my right knee has a torn meniscus. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So now I have, you know, this big lateral prehension brace that I have to wear every day when I, you know, go out. It doesn't keep me from riding seven, eight miles on my bike. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, but um, that's one of my goals is to run. I can't. So I used to play basketball. I used to play basketball, you know, in the park and stuff like that. And the one thing that I haven't been able to do, I haven't been able to shoot because of the arm weakness because mm, I'm right-handed. Okay. And I've been working on that. But um, funny thing is they incorporated that in my physical therapy. I'm going to tell you a quick story. And um, she actually, it was so funny. They pulled me, put me outside. They put me outside of Rancho Los Amigos on the basketball court with a basketball. And I can only use my left hand. And I'm shooting with my left hand, right? But one thing for me is um, visualization. I visualize myself being, getting better and doing it. So I'm, I'm out there shooting the ball. I'm not making anything because I'm not left-handed, so I'm missing everything. <laughs> but I never forget, oh, my God. So I missed a shot, and I call myself going to chase the rebound. And, man, you should have seen the look on the physical therapist's face because she was, like, kind of I mean, She may have been about 15 steps away from me. And I and I go to get the rebound. And I'm running. I'm about to fall over. She's all that. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm playing basketball. <laughs> uh, that old that old motor memory just kicked in, and exactly. you're like, I gotta face that. <laughs> yeah, she was like, No, you can't do that. No, oh, you're not ready for that. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, that's those are the two things that I haven't been able to do. I mean. Um, I'm still strengthening, you know, I'm not able to, I'm not able to lift, um, as much weight as I used to be able to lift anywhere near that. And that's okay. <laughs> you know, I can lift something, you know, I mean, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's really hard to do like over the overhead, yeah. you know, over the, yeah, over the head, um, weight lifting and stuff like that, shoulder mm -hmm. presses and stuff like that is hard, but I still do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, yeah. there's, that's the best way to keep getting better, right? <laughs> just keep doing yeah, it. Yeah. I just. Yeah, exactly. So Barry, there's one part that we talked about kind of early on in your story when you were in the hospital and you got that letter from the DMV saying that you didn't have a job essentially, you know, for lack of other words. And uh, you also didn't have health insurance. So I know that health insurance or lack thereof is a giant stressor and navigating some of these state systems can be really challenging. So I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit more from the patient experience, what it's like to be navigating those health systems while also just trying to focus on your recovery. And if you could just give us some insights that we can be a little bit more compassionate and understanding and savvy with, with understanding our patient's experience. Okay. So I'm going to paint a picture for you. Okay. Picture a patient that has lost their job. Thank God I, I wasn't a homeowner at the time <laughs> because there's patients that are homeowners, you know, that are homeowners and they have a mortgage and that adds another piece to it. But you just picture a patient that has, that has lost their job. Um, the only income that they have is the income from their past job, which is the um, EDD department <laughs> because they don't have any other income and they have no medical insurance because they did not reach the probationary period on their job. And then picture somebody, that same patient, going downtown Los Angeles to the DHS, DHS office and his DPSS office, and has never been there before. 
Can you go through some of those acronyms? Because I think every state and has different acronyms. So if you could just tell us for people not here. So the DPSS is the Department of Public Social Services. Okay. That's where you get assistance with um, um, cash aid if you need it and food stamps. And the cash aid, I'm going to tell you right now, if you do, if you are approved for cash aid, it's only 200 and something dollars a month. Okay. That's it. That doesn't get you too far, especially not it in LA. Not. No, it doesn't get you too far. And then the food stamps is another, it's also monthly and it's only a hundred and they give you like $180. Each case is different. I got like $180, $185 a month. Okay. And wow. every now and then a gradual increase. So, um, at the time that I did it, um, you had to go downtown. You had to go and be in person. You couldn't do it. They don't have, they didn't have the platforms in place like they do now where you can do it all electronically. I'm downtown with my mom because my mom was my transportation. I couldn't drive. And I'm downtown, have an appointment and everything, literally sitting in a room with homeless people, mm-hmm. with pregnant moms. That 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 have had to, that have had to make that, that basically is a day trip, and have had to come with their other children in the lobby sitting there, and you and you wait anywhere between three to four hours with an appointment. I'm not like I said, I never experienced that. I didn't know anything. I I've never been on food stamps. I never had to have medical. Never, yeah, never had to have um cash aid. Never any of that stuff. Because you've always had insurance, you've always had a job. Always, so this was the first time where both of those were dropped. And on Absolutely. top of that, you're also dealing with having a stroke and limited transportation, kind of depending on someone exactly. else. So I can see this kind of compounding. Yeah, this is a lot. Exactly. And and you sitting down there, and then not only that, they have I don't you know, all the facilities do because they're state ran facilities. They have a police department, a sheriff's department at every one. So you literally have armed sheriffs walking around there because people. People usually in, the, in those places, they, they tend to get impatient and they go off. They go off on the, on the caseworkers and everything. And then they have, you know, the, the sheriff has to come and arrest them. And yeah, all this wow. is happening. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just trying to like get groceries and you right. know, get by. Right. right. And then the thing about it is there's a mountain, literally a mountain of paperwork that you have to fill out. Mm-hmm. They basically want to know your life story. They want to know about where your income is. They want to know um, about what kind of job you have. They want to know um, where you live. They want to know everything about you. Mm-hmm. And even after you pour out your heart and tell them every bit of, uh, you know, piece of your life, okay, you'll hear, from, you'll hear back from us in about three or four weeks. In the meantime, yeah, exactly. In the meantime, you have no money. You have no food. You, yeah, exactly. You, if it wasn't for my mother, I would have been on the street. So... <laughs> Yeah. So what do you think we could, is there a way that you could have been served earlier? For example, is there something that could have been done in the hospital to get those processes started? Or you really, you just had to be there in person. In the hospital was done now. I wish it had been done then. So as a peer mentor, we actually help you with that stuff. Actually at Rancho Los Amigos, they have what is called the uh, resource center. And we literally take patients down to the resource center and we get them started on that process and on the computer so that when they get out, most of their paperwork is already done, if not all of it. And then, and then they can immediately start receiving benefits. And that's even for um, in-home health services as well. For caregivers, we help them with that. 
and the caregivers as well, because I'd never heard of either one of those services. I didn't know about IHSS. I didn't know about DPS. I didn't know anything about that. So I had to learn on my own. Right. Well, I'm glad they have that resource center. And I think to people listening who maybe don't have that at their hospital, this might kind of get their gears turning to see if that's something they can provide. Because hearing your story and just thankfully you have a great wife and mom and just a really good support system and a good family, but not everybody has that support system. Exactly. Not everybody lives in your family. And so just thinking about that gap time, you know, by the time you do figure out what you need to do and you go in to get that support and you fill out all the paperwork and they tell you th- three to four weeks. I mean, you, people can't see me, but my jaw dropped. I, I couldn't believe you had to wait that long. And just to think that that leaves people for sometimes months total, all things considered, with no support. And, and I guess I just, what are you supposed to do? I'm going to do you one better. I'm not done. Oh, so, oh, oh no. yeah. You got, I want to hear oh, it, but oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not done. So I only had one year's worth of income from the EDD. Okay. And they literally wrote me a letter and said, you're going to get two more checks and you're done. That's it. I had you no, said, is that the, is that California's sort of like unemployment? Um, that's the, uh, yes, that's the unemployment office. Um, I forgot what the EDD stands for. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, forgot I just the, for context, yeah. want to make sure. So that's a state... Uh, yeah. department and it's for people who are unemployed people are unemployed people who have been fired that's okay. their income that they receive you know when they get fired or when they've been laid off you okay. file a claim with the edd and, they, and then they give you money based on the money you've accumulated over the years i, I see okay yeah. so it's like it's, I mean, it's a system you pay into exactly yeah okay, if, if you look on your paycheck stub you'll see edd and they put a certain amount of money in there every week out of your paycheck Great. That's. I'm glad we clarified because there are listeners from yeah. all over the world and from yeah. other states. I know every place is so different. So this is good. Okay. I want to hear right, what you're yeah. <laughs> So that was that piece. And then, okay, I filed a, I, I filed a claim to get uh, social SSDI, social, um, social Security Disability Insurance. They denied my claim, which they, which uh, what I understand, I didn't understand then, but I know now that they always do that. The first time you apply, they automatically deny you. So I had to get a um, state-appointed attorney and go, and, and by the way, they denied my claim, and then I had to refile another claim, and it took six months to see a judge after I refiled. So six months goes by. I go to see the judge now, and I, and I really want, I want this to hit home for all you people listening. They penalize you in the state systems for getting better. And I'll explain that statement right now. I, at that time, I was, I was thriving. I was, getting, I was getting a lot better. I, was, I even had a gym membership at that point. And I went to see the judge and a couple of medical, med- look, look at my fingers, medical experts. <laughs> You're making the air quotes. That are going to tell, right, they're going to tell me about what my situation is and my recovery is that it never met me. As a matter of fact, the gentleman that was the, the he was a neurologist. He was he was in Arizona. He wasn't even here in California. He's doing what you and I are doing. So they're reading over my case and everything. They asked me a few questions and they determined that I am not disabled enough to get SSDI that I've been paying into since I was 16 years old. So it's money I have. This is the money I've made since right. I've been working since I was 16. So the money's there. But, oh, Mr. Bladen, you're not disabled enough. The fact that you can go to the gym, the fact that you can walk in here, even though you're walking with a cane, you're not disabled enough. 
so we we yeah you know they denied my claim wow so there's no money <laughs> that, and this that, is after over six months this is after over six months so at that point i had to so i was still i, I left that piece i was still living in my in, in the house that i was renting because my dad my dad lived with me and my dad shared the rent with me well i didn't tell you this but i'll, I'll go ahead now and this is not off the record it's okay my okay. dad died at the end of 2013. <sighs> he, he literally died. Yeah, he died December 28th, 2013, same year that I came home from the show. Yeah, he died. So now <laughs> I'm having to pay the, you know, the entire rent by my, yeah. And my mom helped me, but, but you don't have any yeah, exactly. No income. And then after that happened and the decision was made, I had to literally move out of that house and move in with my mom and my family. Because I didn't have a choice at that point. Wow, wow. twenty thirteen was your twenty twenty. Right, right. Twenty thirteen <laughs> and, and twenty fourteen. Yeah, they, they were. They really were. Yeah, those are some tough years for you. So, so you're coping with your own crisis, but also with a serious loss. And, yeah. And then also not having just some of those found. You know, we talk about like Maslow's hierarchy, but some of those foundational needs were all kind of the foundation was shaken. Right. The the Maslow's oh, yeah. hierarchy of your shelter and you know, thankfully you had your mom, but, uh, so, so much was up in the air and, and unsettled while you're just trying to focus on being healthy and not stressed. I mean, how do you focus on not being stressed when, when you're going through all this? You know what? That's very hard. And I'm glad you asked that question, but I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, part of that's fear for me mm. anyway, I can't, I can't speak for other patients, but for me, that's fear because one thing that I, I tell the patients all the time and, and, and I'm, I'm very happy to say it. I've had one stroke. I'm not having another one. That, mm. That's it. I, I'm determined. I'm not going to have another stroke. <laughs> Period. You had more than yourself. <laughs> right. Exactly. So if, if worrying and, and, and stressing is going to cause me, and it could cause me to have another one, I, I just do whatever I have to do to not do it. If I have to walk out there and, and walk five, 10 miles, whatever, <laughs> I'm going to do it because I don't, I, don't I don't want anybody to experience that, and I don't want to experience it again. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Barry, I feel like your story too is a really good reminder that sometimes the pieces of advice that we give about ways to change your habits after, you know, you experience something like a stroke, Mm -hmm. uh, they're really well-intentioned, but it's so important that we know what kind of environment, like we've talked about, our patients are going back into because we can't just say, okay, reduce stress. Stress increases your risk of stroke. That's great, but if we don't know what kind of major, serious, life-changing stressors are happening in that person's environment, then we're just we're just you know giving that what's the phrase we're giving that advice to the wind. We're like shooting. I mean, no one's it's not going to be processed by that patient because that patient has to deal with so many other things that are happening. So just to say reduce your stress when we give them a pamphlet of how to prevent another stroke, I mean that's not going to be effective. Um, no, we need to really understand what's happening and what are the major stressors and can we provide supports and resources up front to reduce some of that for them and with them. Yeah, even like, you know, we tell people to improve their diet, right? We, we educate people on nutrition, but if they're waiting to get food stamps for two months, I'm pretty sure their priority is to just eat and be fed, not to eat healthy, right? Right. And oh, guess what? That's one thing I left out. So, you know, EBT, which is, which is food stamps, the food stamp card, it's accepted everywhere, right? But this is very important. If you're not homeless, you can't go into a McDonald's or a Burger King or a 7-Eleven and use that EBT card. You have to be homeless. So if you're not homeless, 
you cannot get a hot meal. I kid you not. You have to be homeless. So I, I wasn't homeless, right? So I can only use my card in the grocery store that accepts the card on cold items. You can't, yeah, you can't. So I could go, I could go to Ralph's down the street. And if I go try to get a service deli item, like some hot chicken or something like that, because it's hot food, the, the, the card, it won't, it won't take it unless I'm homeless. So if you're not homeless, you cannot get a hot meal. Yeah. I did not know that. And just for context, people listening, Ralph's is a just normal grocery store. So you right. then going to the normal grocery store, Barry, had to be particular about what items would be covered by the card. Yeah. When you go to check out yeah. and you scan it, it's going to reject certain items. Yeah, exactly. And they'll tell you, you know, they'll, it'll take off, you know, what they accept on the card. And then they'll, and they'll be like, okay, there's a balance left. You have to pay cash for that stuff. And that's paper plates. If you try to get a paper good, you have to pay for that. If you try to get something from the service, anything from the service deli, a sandwich, it doesn't matter. You got to pay for it. Then the state will not pay for that if you're not homeless. Okay. Mm-hmm. And these are things that, I mean, did you have to learn these sort of uh, by trial and error or did they yes. outline this really clearly for you? I had to learn it by trial and error because they asked, that's part of that paperwork I told you about. They ask you if you're homeless then you get full benefits. They, they, you can use your card anywhere, but if you're not homeless, you can't use that card anywhere. Okay. So I'm guessing the theory behind it is that if you're not homeless, you probably have a kitchen in which you can prepare your own hot meal. Is that kind of the logic there? That's the theory. Yes, that is the logic. Yes. Mm-hmm. But if you've had a stroke and you have hemiparesis and you're using a wheelchair and you can't reach your microwave to heat something up and you can't use two hands to open something, you're out of luck. Exactly. Okay. Just, just trying to understand here. <laughs> Yeah, and, it, and you have to prove you have to prove that you're homeless. Now I'm just curious how you prove you're homeless because I know you have to prove you know your address by bringing in mail, proving that hey I received mail to this address. But how do you prove that you don't have that? That's interesting. I know you didn't have to do that, but that's interesting. Yeah, I think they run you through the database and make sure that you really are homeless. Okay, that you're just not registered yeah. with any other organization exactly. with address. Okay. Yeah, and even they even consider homeless like if you're at a um, if you're at a halfway house. And sure. you're able to stay there for a couple of nights. You know that it's not guaranteed shelter. They even consider that homeless. Okay. Well, that's good so at least. If you go to a mission or something like that, that's homeless. Yeah. But this goes back to your point that um, some of these state programs maybe are well-intentioned and you can see the logic, but it doesn't work no. in practical life with people who have no. actually experienced these crises. No, it doesn't. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot – of channels and, and, and avenues now where people teach, teach patients about in-home supportive services and stuff like that. But when I, when I had my, I didn't, I, the only way I learned about in-home supportive services was a nurse at Rancho Los Amigos told my mom and I, I'm going to look out for you guys. I'm telling you about in-home supportive services. Your son is disabled enough to be able to get it. And this is how you get it. And that's, that's the only way I learned about it. I never knew anything about that. I feel like that is a very common story to hear that by chance a neighbor or even a healthcare provider mentions something in passing that ends up being a very crucial resource that you can't imagine, uh, you know, kind of living or moving on without. And so you mentioned in this case that the nurse uh, mentioned this resource to you, but I don't imagine that it's in the hospital protocol that the nurse educates on this. It sounds to me like the nurse just thought you would benefit and wanted to make sure you knew about it. Is that, is that right? Yes, it's supposed to be the social worker's job. Okay. And the social workers do mention it, but again, now, and this is again, this is at Rancho Los Amigos. 
The pair mentors do that. The pair mentors okay. are actually the ones that actually, have you ever heard of Access Transport? You know, I know you heard of yeah. But yeah, we actually sign people up for Access Transport so okay. that when they get out of the hospital, that they can actually have a way to get around and get to their appointments and stuff like that. Okay. They don't okay. do that stuff. A lot, a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of places don't do that stuff. Right. Does mm-hmm. everyone, at least at Rancho, do they, does everyone get a peer mentor or is there someone who could fall through the cracks? Well, they're, they're only, the only way they can fall through the cracks is if they don't want to come to like the support group okay. or they don't want to, or they don't want to basically, because peer mentors are, are there at the therapy process too. We go into the gym mm-hmm. and we actually model how to get up off the floor and model how to get them out of your wheelchair and get on the mat. We, we actually do that. Most of the patients are receptive to that. But you always have one or two that are just isolated and don't mm-hmm. want to be bothered with anybody because they're still dealing with what happened. Yeah. You know, and we try to chip away with try, try to chip away at them slowly, but sometimes we don't get through them. Sure. But everyone mm-hmm. has access to you oh, yeah. or or another mentor. And then that it at least at Rancho, that is the job of the peer mentor, one of the jobs of the peer mentor to deal with that. And then you would hope at other facilities there would be someone who's responsible for that. But, you know, I wonder, you know, and I would be really curious for listeners to share too, if their facilities have a good process where there's a consistent person who communicates this information. Because I feel like there's been times where I've casually mentioned a resource and someone has said, wait, let me get a pen. I want to write that down. What are you talking about? I've never heard of that. And it just feels like something that by the time they got to outpatient, they probably should have known. Right, exactly. And that's why I'm so glad you said that because I'll tell often to this. That's why one of the goals of no barriers is to be in every county hospital in the in the city. They're trying to get in the CAT. They're trying to get in the Harbor UCLA. They're, they're trying to get into every hospital to have those resources for the patients. Yeah. Can we rewind then? So no barriers is the organization you're a peer mentor through, or are you a peer yeah. mentor directly with Rancho? No, no barriers is a part of Rancho. Okay. Right. And but the the outreach is beyond Rancho. Even if you don't get care, your care from Rancho, that there's some consistency in what you're learning and and the, these mentoring relationships. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yep. And good. even so, right now we're doing a support group on on Zoom. Even like okay, so I know some patients mm-hmm. they they didn't necessarily have their recovery process at Rancho, but they've had stroke, so they actually allow those patients to join our Zoom meetings. I've had a couple join Zoom meetings, and and it's really really helpful for those oh. patients. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you guys were able to keep that going even oh, yeah. during the pandemic because you and I talked about this offline the other day, but uh, this idea that hospitals are trying to kind of push people out, especially if they don't have COVID. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is well-intentioned, right? Trying to keep people healthy and safe. And sometimes, especially during this time, being at home is probably one of the safer places to be for a lot of folks. So I get it. It's well-intentioned. Also, they need to open up beds for some of these uh, folks who are coming in with severe cases of COVID. But for that person who's being kind of pushed out of the system quicker, this is their potentially their only stroke. Hopefully it's their only stroke. But yeah. this is their only stroke experience. And then to just be sent home, I mean, I can only imagine they're missing out on some really valuable therapy and resources and community. Yeah. And that, and that hurts my heart because I'm like, I understand the situation and we're in unprecedented times and I get that. But I don't want anybody to be cheated out of their therapy because the thing about it is you don't you don't know what that person's mentality is and they could go home and literally just decide I'm not gonna do anything. I didn't get what I you know, what I needed to go on and recover. I I just maybe I'll just give up and, and die, you know, and I, that that really <laughs> that strikes a chord with me. I'm like, Oh my god, man, they 
You know, that's not okay. It's not okay. It's it's really not. Because every every patient should, I, I feel that every patient should receive the same level of therapy I did. I yeah. that's I feel really strongly about that. Yeah. I feel like no one wins. You know, exactly. and it's hard. I, I can't say that I have a better solution. I think everyone's doing their best and trying really hard to make the most of what's happening. But yeah. you're right. It kind of breaks your heart thinking about some of the people who might have fallen through the cracks. And hopefully through opportunities like No Barriers, there's other folks who can kind of join into the fold, even if uh, they didn't necessarily have that mentorship while they were in the hospital. You know, there's still opportunities for them to get connected and get support. Yeah. 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 So everything I do, everything I do came from some words that were said to me by that ICU doctor before I had, no, no, after I had the stroke, actually. So that ICU doctor told me what I was never going to do again. Told me I was mm -hmm. probably never going to walk again. Probably told, told me I probably never had the use of my right hand, right side again, ever. Told me that straight out, was very, very adamant about it, was very like, you know, stone-faced. Okay. Well, me being the Christian that I am, I automatically re I let those words go in this ear and come out this ear. I'm like, oh no, nope. no, no, no. I can do all things through Christ. That's not that's not gonna happen. So I use those words mm -hmm. as a motivating factor, as a motivating factor to get me to where I'm at now, and is gonna get me to the future because it's been a very rocky road starting over with school having a brain injury, <laughs> having to take courses that I've never taken, medical terminology, anatomy. I had to take anatomy three times and I'm not embarrassed about it. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. You know, physiology. I have a feeling you're in good company. Those are tough classes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the thing about it is you spoke about my optimism. I failed a couple of courses. Mm -hmm. I have. I failed a couple of courses and I went right back and took them over. Yeah. Because like I told you earlier in the conversation, as long as I can breathe and I get up every day, I, I have, I can fight. Yeah. So I'm never out. <laughs> I might be down for the moment, but I'm never out. So I've, you know, I mean, normally it takes two years to go through junior college. It took me three. That's fine. No problem. Mm -hmm. Because I had to retake a couple of courses, especially chemistry. I hate chemistry. I'm going to just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone goes into OT because they love chemistry. So. Right. Exactly. So yeah, you know, chemistry. And I was fortunate to get through Dominguez in two years. I got through Dominguez, no problem, in two years. And um, I got my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. That's five years right there. And then I got these two right here with USC. Yeah. If I, if I decide not to become a doctor, I'm, I'm on the fence about that. <laughs> OTD, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let me rewind though, because you're talking about your educational journey. And, and so just for context, when you talked previously about when you looked at your occupational therapist and you said, I want to be an OT, and she kind of laughed it off. I was like, okay, sure, you're just in it, but I don't, I don't know about all that. You know, what? when was that? And then I guess how long after that did you go to, and you called it junior college, but for people who are in different areas, maybe like community college or working on an associate, is that what you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So what happened when you were like, you know what, we're doing this, we're going to go back to school? So that was 2014, and I was still recovering in Rancho Los Amigos. And I don't want to leave this out. I also um, was fortunate to be recommended for the dose study at USC, which mm -hmm. is, um, which is, a, I think you've heard of it. It's a research study program for recovering stroke patients. You haven't heard of it? Okay. Well, it sounds vaguely familiar, but uh, there's so many acronyms in research of different studies, and I start to lose track of which one's which. So, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> so that was yeah, I was able I was able to go and do that once a month at okay. USC for four hours. And was that and rehab based? That was rehab too and well, it was research based too for USC. Sure. Yeah, and, and they you know, they paid me and all that stuff. But um it happened while I was at Rancho Los Amigos and like I said, she would send patients over there to to basically mimic what I was doing because they weren't doing it right. So they'd be like, she'd just be like, okay, well, Barry's doing it right. So you just go over there and you do exactly what Barry's doing. And, uh-huh. you know, and I'll watch you from afar. And that's when I told her, you know, that's why I, I think I want to be an occupational therapist. So I literally, um, my mom has a friend that, that she's been friends with for years. Oh, I can't think of the name of the agency. It's a state agency, but she's the one that told me about the Department of Rehabilitation. Now, do you know what the Department of Rehabilitation is? I don't. I'm still new to California, so I haven't quite okay. got a handle on all this. So tell us, yeah. So the Department of Rehabilitation is for dis- disabled people to get either go back to school to retrain for a new career, or they retrain you themselves for a new career. So you have a choice. You can go back. If they accept you into the program, you can go back to school, which is what I decided to do, or you can be trained to work at Starbucks, or you can be trained if you have some education, they'll take what education you have and they'll train you for, for something else so that you can be, so you can get gainful employment. And the beautiful thing about the department of rehabilitation, if you go to a state school, now this is here in California, I can't speak for other states, but if you go, like I went to Cal state Dominion, Mm -hmm. if you go to a state school or you go to a UC, like UCLA, UC Berkeley, Mm-hmm. It's 100% covered. That's incredible. It is. So um, the, what a gold it, mine it sounds. Exactly. Yeah, and they not only they pay for it, they pay your tuition, they pay your books for your books and your supplies. And if you if you ride the bus, they even they even give you a monthly stipend to ride to buy a bus pass to ride the bus to get to where you need to get to. So yeah. good. So that was great. Yeah. <laughs> For those first five years, that was great. Unfortunately, they only pay for a portion of USC because USC is a private school. Right. Yeah. So if I had, and don't get me wrong, I oh my God, fight on, I love USC. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, but if I had, if I had gotten accepted to Cal State Dominguez's OT program, it would be 100% paid for. Wow. So they even cover graduate education too. Yes, they do at a Cal State though, at a UC. They even still, they they were like, yeah, they were like, if if UCLA had an OT program, they would have sent me to UCLA and they would have covered the whole thing. Wow. So meet with someone when you first get introduced to the department, do you meet with someone to kind of go over your career goals and trajectory and kind of plan with them? You do. You have an intake interview. You go over your your career goals and everything. You tell them what you want to do. Um, You go to orientation. And then they, um, I think about seven, seven to 10 days later, they let you know whether or not you're accepted into the program. Then you go to the college you want to, you know, you want to attend. And you, if you have to take uh, like, okay, okay. I had to take placement tests because I hadn't been to school in years. So you have to take the placement test, pass the placement test. And then they tell you where you need to start. Okay. And then once you have all that documentation, you send that to the department of rehab, they write up a program for you. And you have to abide by that program, which includes keeping a two. Well, in the at the junior college level, you have to keep at least a 2.0 GPA. Okay. Yeah, you have to maintain that. 
which praise God, I never had. I always maintain way above that. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they um, if you if you fall below that, they'll give you another chance. But if you do it twice, they'll kick you out of the program. Okay. And you have to at at, at the end of every semester, you well at the beginning of the semester, you have to give them your all your courses, all your course material, material, all your syllabus, and then they and then they they pay for your books and they ship them to you, or you go pick them up. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the semester, you have to give them your grades. Mm-hmm. And they keep all that on record and all that on file. You have to do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense, too. They're, they want to make sure that they're setting you up for success and not just kind of leaving you into the world of college and then hoping it works out. I mean, it sounds that sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, so can we just backtrack, too, because I know your sure. prior career was driving trucks and you don't necessarily need any college experience for that, but some people might have college experience. So did you have any post high school education before deciding to become an OT? Did I have any post high school education? I did not. No, I went to truck driving school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you said, I'm going to an OT, and then you knew you were going to have to go to school for, yeah. gosh, at least yeah. seven years, yeah. right? At least. You, you were, you were committed. That's, that's awesome. Well, and that's funny that you mentioned that. So I hadn't, I hadn't talked to my, um, my OT for the entire time that I was at El Camino College. We lost touch. And then my first year at Dominguez, I came back. I actually sent her an email and, um, you know, I told her, I said, this is Barry, you know, how are you doing? And, um, I'd like to come see you. I'm going to start volunteering around to those amigos. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Come, you know, come see me. So I went to see her. And when she found out that I was at, you know, the university, she was like, oh, you weren't, you weren't playing. You, you were <laughs> you committed. Yeah. yeah. She was like, oh, you're serious. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be an OT. I told you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I actually was able to volunteer. Un- they put me under her. So I was actually able to volunteer under her because you have to volunteer for a year before you're um, eligible to be a peer mentor. You can't, you can't be, a, you can't just go in. Yeah. You can't just go into peer mentoring. You have to you have to volunteer first, and then you then they um you're an eligible candidate to become a peer mentor to go into that process. Yeah. So then you did you you got your associates, you got your bachelor's, then applied for OT schools, and as you've mentioned, you're now at USC and you're in the master's yeah. program. And tell us what has that been like? Um, you know, coming into OT school was such profound and valuable experience having been on the kind of the other side of things as a patient. I mean, how has that influenced the way you see your education or the way you've kind of moved through some of that OT training? <laughs> well, at first in the summer, I was a nervous wreck because <laughs> that's a rigorous, rigorous process. I've never, so I have a degree in kinesiology. I told you that before. And part of the summer program is taking kinesiology in four weeks. Four weeks. That's a lot to jam for yeah, a month. Exactly. <laughs> Something I took two years to get a degree in in four weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was that was really, really, really nerve wracking. And then we were the first class this 2022. We were the first class to fully be on Zoom. Right. It, it, yeah, we've never. They never had a class. Schools all around the world were adapting. So, right. you know, you're adapting to being in grad school, and they're also adapting to what it looks like to teach grad school online. Exactly. So all the format was changed and everything for them and for us because literally we're like 
what we're doing right now. We sit in front of the computer all day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, five days a week. Because it's, it's, like it's a four week class. So five days a week, you're like right there. So it started out really stressful, really came it on strong. Out very, very, <laughs> very stressful. But I took on the same approach that I've been taking on as far as stress is concerned, you know, and, and I'm going to be very transparent with you. I'm not embarrassed about it. I don't get embarrassed. I, you know, I had to retake kinesiology this last semester. I had to retake it. And that's fine because I didn't get the grade that I need to get to maintain USC standards. And that's fine. I understand that. Yeah, that, that's okay. But I took the same approach that I take that I take every day. I'm like, I'm not going to stress about it. They gave me the opportunity to retake the course. I'm going to retake the course. And this time I got an A. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's great. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I did definitely go through imposter syndrome, especially <laughs> not passing because I, I, I was kind of embarrassed on myself. I wasn't embarrassed like in general, but I'm like, okay, I have a degree in this subject and I can't pass this course. But thank God my, my mentor, I won't mention her name, took me by the range and she's like, you're not the only one this has happened to. <laughs> You're not the first and you're not going to be the last. Don't worry about it. Just know that, you know, we, we're going to allow you to retake it because we've never done this on Zoom before. We've never had lab. They had literally everything, the labs and everything on Zoom. I'm a kinesthetic learner. I'm hands-on. I'm not used to looking at skeletons <laughs> and, and bodies on Zoom. I'm used to looking at it right there in the laboratory, putting my hands on it. I'm not used to doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a valuable part of the kinesiology coursework too, is to be able to work with a lab partner or multiple lab partners actually palpate and and exactly. try things out. You know, we, we, that part of our profession, you know, sort of the physical rehab, it's very hands on, and so to be learning it without being hands on, that that's tough. But I appreciate exactly. what you said because I'm sure there's people listening who either are current students and are maybe struggling in a course or have maybe failed a course, or people who have moved on to their careers and they look back and you know they maybe failed a course as well and. Just that, that encouragement, you used the word opportunity. And I would say that when I have sort of failed at things in the past or perceived failure for myself, I rarely think of those in the moment as, well, I have the opportunity to do better. I probably should think that way, but I do, that's not where my mind goes. So I love that encouragement. I think that's just a message. I wanted to repeat it because I think that's such a message that there's probably some people that need to hear right now. I have another one. Oh, so yeah, I bought a, I bought a, I'm not wearing it. I started to wear it today, but I'm not wearing it. I have a t-shirt that I bought recently. And I want everybody to hear this real, listen real good. On the t-shirt, it says, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. So you don't lose. You either win or you're learning. When you learn, you know what to do next time. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you know what to do next time to prevent, you know, to prevent that what happens from happening. So I love that. I love that mantra. I love that shirt. I love that I wear it. And people look like, oh, did you get that shirt? I want that shirt. Yeah, because yeah. it's true. You don't. Be wearing around. Yeah. You know, and, and I, um, I'll just tell you, I had an experience this last semester with, with a professor. I, and of course, I'm not mentioning names. The professor told me I needed to work harder, especially as a person of oh. color. No, I'm a, oh, yeah. no. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. I'm wagging my finger. No, oh, yeah. you don't say that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. They told me that, you know, it's, 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 and it was coming from a person of color. So, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. They were like, we have to work. We have to work harder as people of color. Okay. So I politely took those words and I told that professor, because I didn't, at that point, 
I had only had 40% of my grade. A lot of us were complaining because we didn't have our grade and we were literally three days from the final. So we only had 40% of our grade. So I, I, I turned right back around. I said, I appreciate your words. I understand what you're saying, but listen to me real good. If I don't pass your course, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to burn my face in your, in your head because if I don't pass your course and USC kicks me out, understand something, I will reapply. I will get back into USC and I will retake your course. I said, you got to understand something. Nothing's going to stop me from achieving my goal. Yeah. I've had setbacks before. So if I do not pass your course, you will see me again. Trust me, you'll see me again. It might, it might take me longer, but I will be back. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like you are just so resilient too. And I wonder, I'm sure some of that comes from your experiences. Some of that might just be you though, you know, Barry at baseline, um, (laughs) who's resilient, but that is so important too for OT students. You know, I think anyone who pursues this career field tends to be pretty high achieving, I think. Yes. And tend to work really hard and expect a lot of themselves. It's something I hear a lot from students, just the they're overcome by the stress and this need to be perfect and need to excel and not just get by. Sometimes we just need to get by. But I hear a lot this perception of like needing to excel and then and then that is so it, it's I hate this word, but it's kind of it's crippling. I mean it, it'll yeah. just break you down from the inside. It will. And if you look at it from my perspective, and, and every OT student needs to hear this. Look at what my look at how my OT influenced my life. I'm still I'm still in touch with both of my OTs. My OTs both came to my wedding in 2000. Yeah, both Amazing. of them. Oh, exactly. So you got to understand what kind of power you have and you're going to have as an OT because I can tell you right now from 2013 to 2021, I can still hear my OT saying in my head, Barry, use your right hand. I can still hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can still hear, I still hear, and every time I see her, I'm like, every time, and I'm like, we have no idea the impact that we have on patients' lives, because let me tell you something, yeah, physical therapy deals with your strengthening and condition, I I get that, but it is, let's just be very, very transparent and honest, it's invaluable to be able to sit down on the toilet and wipe your own ass, but let's, come on now. Okay, <laughs> it, it really it, it is, it is very, very valuable to be able to shave, to be able to brush your own teeth, be able to dress yourself. You don't want no, especially men, you know, men have pride issues. You don't want nobody dressing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? I feel like that's just part of, you know, um, feeling dignified too, you know, and it's okay. There's some people that do need full assistance with all of your ADLs, you know, there's people who need that and that's great. And there's ways to, you know, show people dignity um, and value people in those situations. But yeah, there's something about if you can do something independently, you want to. Exactly. And that's what OTs give you. That's what you, that's what all of us here, listen, that's what we're going to do. We're going to give the patient their independence back, you know, and it might not, and it might not be to the full extent that they want it to be, but they're going to get some independence back one way or another, most yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's all I want to do. I mean, I know what I've been through. I've, I've told you, you know, my story and I, and I know what I've been through. And all I want to do is, is, is be a help to patients and try to help them, if I can, not go through some of the other things that I went through. I explained to you about the job, 
about finances and stuff like that, about not knowing, not having the resources. If I can, if I can help them with that, <laughs> let alone help them with their ADL, that's invaluable. It, it really is very valuable for them to be able to have those resources because a lot of people don't know about that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so true. And, and um, I love that you're just hitting right at the heart of what we do and what we value as OTs. Right. Yeah. I feel like throughout this conversation, you've been kind of highlighting some things about the patient experience that I know have already kind of influenced me in the way I'm thinking about our role as practitioners and just understanding a little bit more about what it's like to be on the other side. But is there anything else that you haven't mentioned that you wish OT practitioners or other healthcare professionals knew about what it's like to be a patient? It goes along with um, this book. Oh, I have to tell you about this book that I love. <laughs> it goes. We're going to get to your book recommendations. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, it, it goes along about just being mindful, you know, about understanding some of the things that I've talked to you guys about and as much as you can, putting yourself in that bed, put yourself in that bed. Mm-hmm. Think about how you would react and how you would feel if you were the one laying in that bed and that patient was standing over you. A perfect stranger. They don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. They understand that you're there to help them and that you're there to you know, aid them through their recovery process, but you're not going through what they're going through. And you have to really, really just kind of leave yourself and put yourself as much as you can in that patient's shoes. Don't ever make the mistake. I'm going to tell you guys right now, don't make the mistake of telling them you understand what they're going through. Do not do that. Mm, That's good advice. That's a tempting thing to say. Mm -mm. In a lot of areas of life, it can be true. Right. But I in this one, you got to be really careful. And unless you really know, don't say exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Don't say that because I've seen some OTs get cussed out behind that one statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I, you know, and, and see, you're dealing with all kinds of walks of life. You're dealing with, because some of these stroke patients and some of these brain injury patients, they're very, very intelligent, <laughs> even though they've had them. So they yeah. know how to psychologically, they'll mess with you. They'll, be, they'll throw a question right back. Oh, well, what have you done? What have you experienced? Wait a minute. Have you? <laughs> Don't oh, yeah, put yourself in that trap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But just try to be, you know, just, just try to be as understanding and as mindful about what they're going through as you can. And if you're not, if you're working with a difficult patient and you're not at your best, get some help. There's nothing wrong with getting help. You got colleagues, you got a team. You get some help. Seek some advice because don't don't just trap just don't don't just keep trying to work with a difficult patient and they're and they're just not it's just not getting through to them. It's not working. Get some help. You know, if you're fortunate enough to have a peer mentor, get a peer mentor. Hey, I need help with this patient. I need to be able to crack this barrier. Can you come help me? If you don't have that. Go to your supervisor, go whoever you have to go to get some help. Right. Don't try to do it alone. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's a team approach, right? Is That's what we're supposed to do. And we just want to help the patient, right? We just want to help them right. recover, thrive, and that takes a team. Right. And you're not, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm not I'm not braggadocious or chewing my own horn or anything like that. You're not going to meet very many berries because I never, my OT can tell you right now, I never gave my OT a problem. I never gave any any therapist a problem. Because I wanted to get better. See, everybody, that's another thing you got to remember. Everybody doesn't want to get better. 
Some people actually look at the resources that the state provides and they're like, I'm going to just ride this way for the rest of my life. And I'm telling you, it, it happens every day. They're like, you know what? I had a stroke. I had a brain injury. I'm going to just ride this wave. I'm going to live off this government for the rest of my life and I'm done. So a lot of them don't want to get better. A lot of them just, yeah, they just go ahead and they just take, you know, accept what happened and don't try to improve. They do very, very, the very minimal. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I guess really understanding their motivations and trying to mm-hmm. tap into kind of what's driving them. And because mm-hmm. I think as helping professionals, we just assume people want to get better because right. that's what we want for them and that's what we're trained to do. And that's our wheelhouse. Yep. But that's not everybody, though. Yeah. Yep. It's yeah. not everybody. And everybody doesn't want to be an OT like Barry. <laughs> right. All, the, all, all recovery patients did. Yeah. <laughs> when you said there's only one Barry, I was like, I believe that. There you are, yeah. one of a kind, Barry. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think this is a good time to transition into your book recommendation because you kind of hinted at it a little bit. So you talked about mindfulness, and is that actually the name of the book, or, or can you kind of orient us to what what book this is? That's the name of the book, Mindfulness, and it's by Ellen J. Lang. It's the twenty fifth edition. It's actually a book that we had to read for my therapeutic use of self um course last semester, and we actually had to write a paper on it. And I'm going to share with you my favorite quote from that book, because this, this, sums, this, this sums it up for me 100%. By recreating a time when we felt vital and healthy, we come to see that we can be vital again. Mm. Like I was telling you earlier. Yeah, exactly. You want me to read it again? I was actually just going to ask you to read it again. That would be great. Yeah. By recreating a time when we felt vital and healthy. We come to see that we can be vital again. So what that says to me is basically what I was telling you about earlier, like the like me wanting to play basketball because I love basketball. I saw myself making the basket like I used to. I saw myself dribbling the ball. Throughout my entire recovery process, I have seen myself better. And that is what I try to instill when I'm when I'm mentoring a patient, I always tell my patients. You have to see yourself well. You, you don't need to see yourself in this wheelchair. You don't need to see yourself with that walker. You need to see yourself well. Yeah. And if you can visualize that and you can see yourself well, that will help you with your recovery process. I mean, it's interesting because I actually used to have a boss before I actually got into OT. I, was, I think I was in OT school, but I was working in horticultural therapy. Oh, and I okay. had a boss say, you know, close your eyes and do some creative visualization right now. You need that. And I think it was because I was having some pain and some, just some health problems that were persistent. And she just said, you need to visualize yourself. Well, you need to think about, she's like, you know, anatomy, close your eyes and imagine your anatomy, imagine them work, working all beautifully in harmony the way it's supposed to. And I was really skeptical, but she would make me do this in her office. So I kind of just had to do it. And it, it really wow. it helped me, surprised me that it mm-hmm. really was effective at just kind of recentering and focusing on what it would mean to be well, because I do think we can get ourselves into these cycles of being unwell and seeing unwell as the, as what's ahead of us and what's behind us and not seeing a way out of that cycle. So, Absolutely. you know, I think for anyone listening who doesn't quite buy into it, just give it a chance. Um, and in this book, I have not read it, but it sounds really, really good. Is oh, it yeah. written, is, is it written like uh, a textbook or, or like a book you just got to pick up and read? You know, what's the format? It's written like a textbook, but it talks about all different ages. You know, it, it goes throughout the lifespan. It goes through, um, you know, um, I mean, geriatric, 
middle age, you know, um, pediatric. And um, yeah, <laughs> it just, it, it tells you, it's basically about being mindful, like I told you earlier, about what people are going through. Okay. And, and I love it. And I love it because another thing it does, it covers all genders. Mm. All just transgender, everything. It covers all genders because oh. it wants, yeah, it wants you to make sure that you're being mindful of what people are going through because you you said it earlier, your recovery, for you don't know what that person's history and background is. So they're not just going through a disability. They're going through all the other baggage that they have to deal with. Like I was dealing with, with, the, with the finances and the home and the moving. Yeah, you're going through all that in during the recovery process. So if you don't, and everybody doesn't, if you don't have an attitude like me, <laughs> you're going to, you know, I mean, you're going to meet some angry people because yeah. they're going through a whole lot on top of the fact that they're trying to recover from a debilitating disease, you know? Yeah. 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 This book sounds like a, a must read. Yeah, most definitely. And then you also have to be mindful of how you feel because you got to think about it. Let's, 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 let's think about it. Okay. You've seen three patients. Now you're getting ready to go see a fourth patient. You don't know how you're going to feel from one patient to the next. So you have to be aware of your feelings and how you're feeling and, and, and what you're going through as well. Not to mention the patient. It's very hard, you know, and I, and I, and I hope everybody listening understands it. It's hard to be a therapist, period, because you don't just have to deal with the emotions that your patients are going through. You got to deal with your own emotions. That patient doesn't know what you're going through at home. That patient doesn't yeah. know that your that your boss just yelled at you because you didn't get your charting done <laughs> in a timely <laughs> manner. They don't know, <laughs> you know. So you have to be aware of your emotions before you walk in that room and like, hey, let's go to the gym, let's do therapy. You got to be ready. You you got to be ready as a therapist. You got to be ready for away from them and away from yourself as well, because you don't want that to come out when you're trying to help somebody recover. Right. Doing that, yeah, you know, and, and 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 get them to do therapy. You don't want that part of you to come out because they they can people can feel your emotions. They can feel that you're going through something. And if you let that come out, you know, they're gonna be like they're gonna question whether or not you really want to be there. And that's not gonna promote anyone's recovery or health. Yeah. Exactly. As we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to share about your story? The only thing I didn't I didn't really talk about. Um, I found out that once I lost my license and everything, I wasn't going to be able to go back to that career. Then I could go back now, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to go back for quite some time. And um, I, I figured out that I wanted to be an occupational therapist. And, and I figured out that I wanted to go a different direction in my life. Um, don't be afraid to do that. Mm. Don't be afraid to do that because some of you guys might, you know, might be in OT school or, you know, that you want to be a certain type of OT, don't be afraid to switch gears. It's okay. Because what you're doing right now might not be fulfilling. It might not. I mean, I can tell you, I used to, I used to really actually enjoy truck driving. I thought I did. I, I, let, me, let me say it that way. I thought I enjoyed truck driving. But I can't, I can't describe to you how I feel when I talk to a patient and when mm -hmm. I help a patient. That right there, that makes my whole day. It could be one patient. It doesn't matter. I just, I just, I love that. I love the feeling of being able to help somebody be hopeful and help them out, you know, in different aspects of their life if I can, by giving them, giving them resources, whatever. That, that's a rush for me, like no other. Yeah. 
been worth the career change. Yeah. It's been worth going back to school and working most, really, most really hard. Because, and, and, that, and that's the message I want to get across. Don't, don't, you're going to have robots. You're going to have ups and downs. Keep going. If you truly, truly want to be a caregiver, a, 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 you know, occupational therapist, and you want to help patients recover, just keep going. Don't stop. Yeah. It's okay. Because trust me, when you get there, once you get there, if you, if you feel like I feel about helping patients and helping them through their recovery process, there's nothing like it. And I'm going to tell no you looking right back. now, yeah, for me, it's not a paid profession. It's not about money for me. God will the, take care the, of that part. I'm not worried about I'm that part. This. Also, all I want to do is help some patients. That's all I care about. I don't know if it records when Siri's going yeah. off. Anyway. Reset her. Thank you for sharing your story and just being so open about your journey from um, being a stroke survivor to now being an almost occupational therapist. Uh, you know, you're in OT school right now, and you just have such a wealth of experience and knowledge that I know you bring to the classwork and to your volunteer work and everything you're doing. And I'm really excited for you to become a therapist because I just think you're going to change lives. And I know you already have through your peer mentorship, um, but I think your story gives us a lot to think about. People who already are therapists or also who are in OT school right now, I think you've just given us a lot to think about and make sure that we're kind of framing our for the patient. So I'm, I'm just really grateful that you were willing to share your story with me. Most definitely. I love it. <laughs> yep. And then I want to do one more thing, if you don't mind. Please. I would like to mention my wife because my wife could have made a different choice when I had that stroke. Mm -hmm. And and we were on the verge. We had been dating for two years and we were on the verge of marriage plan, I mean, wedding plan. And my wife literally stayed with me from those five years of school until we literally just got married um in 2019 so my wife was with me that whole yeah that whole time everything and don't you don't get me wrong it was it was very hard for her just like it was hard for me but yeah. shout out to my wife for for sticking with me and staying by my side through this whole ordeal yeah yes. the whole village for, that's right to do it just does. about everything worth doing. Yeah. it does it definitely does so yeah well, thank you for sharing that I hope you enjoyed this episode of OT Uncorked. Today I'm reviewing a 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon from Ironstone Vineyards in Lodi, California. It's dry and smooth, my favorite, and I note vanilla and plum flavors coming through. It comes in around $14 depending on where you buy it, and I think it's a good value. I'm giving it 4 out of 5 stars. I chose this wine to pair with Barry's story because the family that started Ironstone Vineyards didn't begin with the wine business they have today. They weren't even winemakers. What started as a small vegetable farm over time and with a lot of dedication to cultivating an environment in which produce could grow turned into a huge farm that produces high quality wine and gives back to the community. I see some parallels with Barry's story. Barry didn't start out with the dream of becoming an OT. But he was dedicated to learning and growing no matter what life threw at him, even a stroke. And he has since cultivated the spirit of a therapist and has worked diligently to get where he is today. This specific wine comes from Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. The Cotts family has grown in different counties and they find that these different locations with diverse soils and climate combine to create a more complex and flavorful wine than if they had just harvested from one location. Similarly to the complexity of this wine, 
Barry brings experience as a driver, a patient, a family member, and someone who has overcome obstacles to his new career as a future OT. And that complexity will absolutely enhance our profession. Many thanks to Barry for sharing his story with us here and for reminding us of the very beautiful profession we have and the opportunity to bring our best selves to our clients every day. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It's always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers.
I'm, I'm hoping that I don't get emotional, but that's okay. <laughs> hey, we're uh, emo- emotional's allowed. If you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm fine with.